politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Confrontation with Iran and the impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas plus is Taylor Swift a psyop? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah, Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsors of this episode are the How the World Works podcast and the University of Austin. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim Garrity, awful news, tragic news, unfortunately inevitable news. We've been waiting for this moment when one of these attacks from Iranian uh, proxies in the Middle East would kill some of our guys. Three guys are killed in this base, Tower 22 in Jordan. We are waiting for Biden's response. He has told us that he's decided what the response is, but we have not uh, seen what form the retaliation will take. And there is a a big debate, intense debate, including within the right about how we should respond to this, or I guess even if we should respond to this. What do you make of it? Well, I note that when the U.S. conducted air uh, began airstrikes against the Houthis in Yemen. That was announced by a written press release from the White House. Uh, Traditionally, when the U.S. takes military action against terrorist threats and hostile states, uh, very often we get an address from the Oval Office. If not from the Oval Office, then from somewhere in the White House. And if not that, then sometimes from some other location. We did not get that from President Biden. To the best of my knowledge, President Biden has not... Uh, done a sit-down interview on this or any other topic since this shooting began, um, nor has there been any formal press conference or, or anything like that. Uh, we did get those very brief, and I mean like one or two sentence answers on the way to Marine One, in which Biden said he had decided. And as I said, don't tell, in the corner post yesterday, don't tell us you decided, just decide, just do it. And it's, this is one of those cases where If you want to announce the response as it's happening or shortly after it has been completed, that's fine. But just stop telling us how you're going to deal with this. Um, I remind listeners that uh, in October, President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, wrote this long essay for Foreign Affairs magazine. And one of the sentences that was in the original printed text but was quickly removed online was the sentence, quote, Although the Middle East remains beset with perennial challenges, the region is quieter than it has been for decades. And of course, this was uh, was sent to print on October 2nd, as we all know, the terrible Hamas attack against Israel, killing 
you know, around a thousand people or more uh, was just a couple of days later. And since then, we have seen the Houthis shooting at U.S. naval ships and commercial vessels in the Red Sea. Uh, and we've seen all kinds of Iranian-backed militia attacks against U.S. forces in Syria and in Iraq and now in Jordan. So we're now like four countries. This is all, you know, probably better. You can make an argument across the Middle East. It is inflamed. Conflict is going on. Um, you can make a fair argument that the conflict between the U.S. and Iran began in 1979. And it's merely, you know, varied on and off uh, during these various periods. But um, it has just felt like we are always, not just a day late and a dollar short, that we always you know, insist that what we're going to do is proportional. Uh, that we never are going to hit them too hard because we don't want to escalate. Never mind the idea that if you were to escalate and you were to hit them so hard, the Iranian mullahs would have something to think about and be deterred. Um, Iran was rather quiet after Qasem Soleimani was reduced to a red streak on the side of the road in Iraq in what we were told was going to start World War III. We were told it was reckless and destructive and all that. But in fact, after shooting down uh, an airliner, Full of uh, Canadians, uh, they actually uh, the Iranians were relatively quiet. I, look, of course, 2020 also featured the COVID pandemic and other factors. But I just like it just feels like a very look. Maybe by the time people hear this podcast, we'll have seen some sort of response in the Middle East. Today's morning jolt, I tried to go through all the different various proxy groups that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, I'm sorry, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps have in Iraq and Syria and Yemen. Yeah, I'm shocked to find planners were reading your morning jolt carefully this morning, Jim, to to uh, uh, consider their options. Well, I, mean, I was surprised to learn that there were apparently uh, you're like, oh, okay, we all kind of know. All right, so Iran's got you know forces in Syria. It's got 570 military sites within the territory of Syria, at least as of June 2023. And there's really no reason to think that's that's changed very much. So um, the argument about whether we need to hit. Iranians, you know, targets in Iran, um, between all of these different countries and the Iranian Navy in the Persian Gulf, I, I, there's, there's no shortage of very, you know, I think tantalizing targets for the U S if we want to send a very clear message to the mullahs, I guess only time will tell whether we're actually going to, uh, launch that kind of an attack though. So no, you've been on this from the beginning. You've been predicting this would happen. I can hear your voice saying, and it's going to happen. And he here it is. It, it has happened. How do you think we should hit back? Well, frankly, that's too hard for me to say because I don't have access to the intelligence. I don't have access to the Pentagon's options. I don't have access to what they say are the uh, likelihood of success of those strikes, the downsides, the possible triggers of escalation. The administration is obviously incredibly sensitive to the prospect of a broader conflagration, <clears throat> an attack that spirals, triggers a cascade uh, of just perhaps just a face-saving maneuver from Iran designed to communicate the escalatory intention that nevertheless requires a response because it doesn't exactly communicate that. There's all sorts of variables that prevent me from saying what we should do and shouldn't do. If, however, the administration wants to follow a blueprint, as Jim just outlined, for restoring deterrence on Iran's part, and he illustrated why it has to be Iran, because all of these, all of its cat's paws in the region have been alive since the October 7th massacre, including the October 7th massacre, Hamas is an Iranian cat's paw too, um, that you have to reimpose caution on Iran. And the way to do that is to hit them directly. And why does that work? It's important to say why that works. 
Because in 1988 with Operation Praying Mantis, in 2020 with the attack on Soleimani, what was communicated to the elements within the regime that fear for its own stability is that a direct conflict with the United States is, is here upon us. And when that happens, when they're confronted with that prospect, all of a sudden sobriety reemerges. Because they don't under, they understand they will not survive a direct conflict with the United States. The regime may not be just toppled from above, but it could be dismantled from below. Yeah, we've seen a little bit of this already, right? Uh, Iran's like, let, let's let's have, let diplomacy work this out, and you have the, the group saying that you know, yeah, Khatib Hezbollah, <laughs> which is like <laughs> declaring victory and retreat. We we sent a message that we wanted to send with the killing of these three Americans. We're done. We're good. You guys are properly chastened, right? Um, no, that's you can't actually weasel out of this one. But I mean, of all the places that knows that a retaliatory response is, com is coming, it's going to be Khatib Hezbollah. The administration has so far limited its responses to the origins of these attacks, even really belatedly, as was the case with the Houthis, where we absorbed three months of attacks and then finally went after the places where they were launching the drones and rockets and piracy from. from. So that's where the administration's comfort zone is. They do have to get out of their comfort zone. They understand that. They've been communicating that. That doesn't mean they like to do it or want to do it. The administration is still dragging its feet. How many hours are we out from this attack? We're like 72, 96 hours from this attack. There's still been no response. It's almost unconscionable. The administration is conveying with all of its actions a desperate fear to avoid having to do what commanders in chief do, which is to keep American troops safe and to neutralize threats to them when they occur. The administration doesn't want to do that. They're so afraid of escalation that they're bringing the conditions that result in escalation upon them. Until they demonstrate some spine, these are only going to get worse because everything in this campaign has been to Tehran's benefit. They've shown that they can draw American blood. They can force us to expend defensive ordinance. They can, we have to move troops around to, to deal with the threat. They can shut down the Gulf of Aden whenever they want to. All these stuff, are, this is really tangible benefits. And the costs that they have to absorb now have grown increasingly high as they've accrued all these benefits. So the longer Joe Biden waits, the harder this operation gets. So yeah, deterrence works both ways, and, and we're we're basically deterred, uh, or, or have been to this point, um, against taking stronger measures against Iran and its proxies in, in the region for fear of what Iran would do to us, Charlie. I think that what we're seeing is a broad indifference and the fruits of that indifference. Joe Biden and his team seem to me to be behaving in the way I behave when my wife asks me if I'll clean out the garage. And I put it off and put it off, maybe even pretend that I've started by moving a few things around, schedule it. But I don't want to do it. This is not what Biden is interested in. And you can see it at every level. I saw all the criticism of Karine Jean-Pierre for her answer about the fallen service men. And I saw some people suggesting that she hates the troops. I don't think she hates the troops. I just don't think she cares about this area. I think she has no conception of this area. She has no interest in this area. She didn't know how to talk about it. If you ask her a question about a progressive priority, her face lights up. She'll talk all day. She didn't really know what to say. She ended up saying that these members of the armed forces were fighting for the administration, and she was criticized for that. And that is a horrible phrase. But again, I don't think she thinks that, because I don't think she thinks about it at all. And I think Joe Biden sets that tone. 
Now, Biden is out of touch. He's old. He's not really running things. But he also doesn't want to be the commander-in-chief. This isn't the part of the job that he likes. As a rule, both parties have got too far away from what the president is supposed to do within our system, which is not lawmaking or law-giving, but is the execution of laws and foreign policy. Biden is about as far away from that as anyone I've ever seen. And it shows. So he knows that he has to respond in some way. He knows there is an expectation. And so he says, well, I've come up with a plan. I've come up with a plan for a plan. We're preparing to have a meeting at which we will decide what it is that we decide to do. And that's just not really good enough. And I think it's going to hurt him because Americans are confused on foreign policy, but they don't like weakness. If you go back over the last 20, 25 years, really since the end of the Cold War, Americans have not quite known what it is that they want. They're dovish, they're hawkish. Many politicians are both at the same time. Trump was bizarre in some sense in 2015, 2016, because on the one hand, he would say that the Republican Party was neocon and it was interventionist and it never met a war it didn't like. But on the other hand, he would talk in these blood-curdling terms about what he was going to do to anyone who crossed us. That's actually where Americans are, in my estimation. If you yeah, talk to people... Just, yeah, it was identifiably a Jacksonian. Sure. But if you talk to normal people, they will say, I don't want a big war, I don't want a big commitment, I don't want lots of body bags. And you say, what happens if somebody kills an American soldier? Ah, I want to shred them. I want their blood to flow down the street. Well, Yeah, that's when we bomb bomb the S out of ISIS. Right. And Biden, I think, is going to pay a price for this because he really does seem indifferent. And when you combine it with his instinct when talking to the bereaved family members of Americans who have died serving their country which is to tell them about his son, who didn't die fighting, but he pretends did, or about his first wife, who died in a car accident, very tragic, but a long time ago, and really not analogous, you start to see a picture of somebody who is just not that interested in his role as the commander-in-chief. So now, before we end this segment, let's go to a, a related related topic, but different topic, which is the extraordinary revelations about UNRWA. This is the UN agency devoted to uh, Palestinian refugees, one purpose of which is just to perpetuate that refugee status, um, creating the uh, expectation that they will return and eventually uh, uh, end end the Jewish state. But in the meantime, they'll be kept in refugee camps uh, forever. And there have long been reports that uh, UNRWA has Hamas ties, it uh, and, and has incitement type material that it teaches in the schools, et cetera, et cetera. And then we've had word that um, UNRWA employees participated in this pogrom in Israel and various, you know, an astonishing number are actually members of Hamas itself. We've cut off funding. This is another thing like the, the Houthi terrorist designation where Biden came in and reversed Trump's terrorist designation. It's like, oh, actually, you know, that was actually a pretty good idea and and reinstated it. Here, Trump had cut off UNRWA and Biden reinstated it. Now, at least has temporarily suspended it. Uh, What do you make of it? Well, this seems to have come to a shock 
a shock to the system for a lot of people who I don't think follow the United Nations or Israel or Gaza and Hamas very closely. This is no surprise to anybody who did. The United Nations Re- Relief Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, UNRWA, has been implicated in supporting terrorism materially and ide- ide- ideologically for well over a decade, longer than that, probably. Um, as you said, they are responsible for a lot of schools in Gaza where they disseminate textbooks that advance Jew hatred. Uh, Hamas militants use uh, UNRWA facilities to store weapons. Weapons depots launch attacks from those facilities in order to shield themselves from retaliation. And now we find out that uh, United Nations personnel you know, were engaged in the, in the, Hamas, in the, the Hamas massacre on 10-7, wearing like UN lanyards. Uh, that's shocking only if you don't understand how Hamas operates Gaza. Everybody in Gaza is connected to Hamas in some way or the other. Any organization that operates in Gaza does so at the pleasure and privilege of Hamas's protection. And so, of course, Hamas uh, militants were attached to this organization. Um, it's it's only marginally surprising that they were engaged in the shedding of blood of Jews on that day. But it's not exactly shocking. The United Nations itself is shot through with corruption uh, designed to advance the goals of terrorist enterprises and the irresponsible rogue regimes that shield them. You mentioned um, UNRWA, how the Trump administration um, managed to, def- you know, res- limit the funding for UNRWA, but it's not just that. The Trump administration, under Nikki Haley, as uh, Donald Trump's UN ambassador, uh, withdrew from UNESCO, which is supposedly this institution that uh, preserves antiquities, but um, is engaged much more in efforts to delegitimize Israel, uh, saying uh, violating U.S. law in the process by saying that it doesn't have sovereignty over its cultural heritage. We withdrew from the United Nations Human Rights Council, which has on its membership 9-11 conspiracy theorists, advances Western propaganda, anti-Western propaganda. It has a permanent agenda item, which is designed only to uh, criticize Israel. So most of its efforts are devoted to the criticism of Israel at the expense of every other uh, humanitarian crisis on the planet. The United Nations General Assembly itself exists only to shield rogue regimes from criticism due and responsible criticism from uh, democratic Western states. The whole institution is really beyond defense at this point. You can make a case for the value of, for example, the IAEA. Maybe it does some nuclear you know, monitoring, some humanitarian aid efforts. The United Nations Security Council, kind of, if our membership on it kind of prevents the conflagration of, uh, of uh, broader conflicts that if the entire undemocratic world would unite in favor of if we were not there, for example, what would happen? You can make those cases, but I think they pale in comparison to the argument against the United Nations existence. It is a institution devoted to the perpetuation of totalitarianism, authoritarianism, terrorism, um, and our, our place there just lends legitimacy to wholly illegitimate enterprises. I don't think we can defend this, this institution anymore. I don't think we can pick and choose what we want to participate in and what we don't. I think all of this is coming to a head really quickly. So Jim, next a question to you. Th- th- this could happen anytime, even before, as you noted earlier, people have listened to this episode, but let's go on the record anyway. Do you think the Biden administration will strike Iran proper in retaliation for this deadly attack on our troops? Yes or no? No, because Biden has avoided anything resembling escalation or anything 
that could you know remotely be called escalation, not just here but also in Ukraine, where we dither for you know the better part of a year whether or not we should send a particular weapons system or not. So it's entirely not in the character of Biden. And then as I laid out in today's newsletter, like there are a heck of a lot of valid targets outside of Iran anyway. No. Yeah, I think we'll probably end up striking IRGC-linked or IRGC-associated facilities, and we'll probably do so after telegraphing that and um, and making sure that the casualties are as limited as they could possibly be. I, I would think it would be a face-saving maneuver, and as a result, it will not restore deterrence. Try. I find these questions very difficult to answer. I suspect the answer is no, in part because I think the White House doesn't want that outcome. Yeah, I'm going to say no as well. It'll be more robust than the prior acts of retaliation, but as I think we're all saying, will not be uh, adequate to restore deterrence. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor this episode. Our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute are back with new episodes of their breakout How the World Works podcast. Hosted by author and political commentator Kevin Williamson. If you're not already listening to the show, each episode, Kevin sits down with notable guests for candid conversations about the jobs they've had and the role of work in the economy and our social lives. From flipping burgers and tending pigs on a farm to leading special ops missions in far corners of the globe, some of America's best thinkers discuss the jobs they've had that informed their outlook on life and future careers. In a recent episode, Kevin sat down with Jonah Goldberg both of whom, of course, are old friends of NR for a fascinating conversation about the ins and outs of Jonah's decades-long career in the media. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash how the world works. That's cei.org slash how the world works. So, Jim, we uh recording here around, it's almost 1 p.m. on Wednesday. Usually we do it on Tuesday morning, but Various uh, accidents of fate have us recording a little later here on Wednesday afternoon. And as we speak, the House has voted out articles of, of impeachment against Secretary, the House Committee, uh, Homeland Security Committee has voted out articles of impeachment, too, I believe, against Mayorkas. And we have word that this border deal, that there's been a lot of chatter and speculation about an argument about prior to its release, is done and the bill will be released soon. Let's go to Mayorkas. First, what uh, is this? Is this a useful exercise for Republicans, and is he deserving of impeachment? Well, those are two separate questions. Um, so, I'm looking at the print edition of the Wall Street Journal, and I would say that the Wall Street Journal editorial page, or, you know, editorial board, and I agree like ninety some percent of the time. Uh, very, you know, rational, astute conservatives over there. But the headline is "Impeaching Mayorkas Achieves Nothing." And this is one of those rare days where I disagree with them. And, uh, you know, of all the people in the world who I can muster sympathy for and I can lift a finger to defend, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas is not one of them. And they make an argument about whether bad policy decisions qualify as high crimes and misdemeanors. I'm really not, when the scale of the failure of policy is as large as we've seen over the past three years from Mayorkas and also from you know President Biden and the entire administration. When it's th- this is not a gaffe. This is not the routine screw up that you find in Washington. This is a policy failure in the fundamental duty of the government. 
uh, I'm perfectly fine with an impeachment effort. Yes, I know it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate. Yes, I know that if, uh, God forbid, Mayorkas got struck by lightning tomorrow and Biden had to appoint a replacement, the replacement would probably not be that much better. Um, but I just kind of feel like there's, there's really nothing wrong with the House of Representatives effectively doing a, a shot across the bow to an utterly incompetent cabinet secretary to say, no, you have screwed up here. You've screwed up over and over again. This is not a one-time failure. This is not a bobbling fumble. You have failed to do your duties and we're coming after you for it. So I, I, I have no real gripes with the House doing this. Yeah, I know it's not going to, this doesn't end with him leaving the, the position, but um, no beefs with House Republicans for pursuing this. Yeah. So as you refer to Jim, it's, it's worse there than incompetence. He, he's, He's somewhat competently carrying out the policy, which is to have a de facto open border. Yeah, and then lying about it. Let's not, yeah. you know, let's not. He spent, you know, years insisting the border is secure, and then, like a couple of weeks ago, Biden comes out and says, "Ah, of course the border is not secure. It hasn't been secure in ten years." By the way, remember who was vice president ten years ago? Yeah. So, Charlie, this this plays into this extraordinary. Uh, act of chutzpah by by the president. So the border deal details or purported details of the border deal began to leak last week, and Biden issued the statement saying th- this is you know the best and, and fairest uh, border security bill we we've ever seen. We got to pass it, and if we do, I will use on day one the authority this will give me to shut down the border. Like there's authority in this uh, deal. When the border situation of the border is unsustainable, which it is now, it should be shut down. And I'm going to shut it down like as soon as this passes and I sign it in, into law. At the same time, you know, they're fighting Texas over Texas stringing along barbed wire to try to keep illegal immigrants out. And there's been zero, zero sign that the administration had any interest in enforcing the border prior to this statement. I mean, it's, you know, there been various statements, but the, the major initiative has been to try to just reclassify uh, as many illegal immigrants as possible to legalize them under this, this app that they've been using. Uh, doesn't work very well and hasn't, hasn't really uh, changed the flow one way or the other, but that's just a, a processing and a classification issue. It's not like we're going to stop this. So, uh, you know, you have the arsonist here uh, pretending he he really needs Republicans to turn on the hydrant so he can put on the put out the fire, and that's why I'm less enthusiastic about impeaching Mayorkas than others are. I believe strongly in the unitary executive because I think it's the only means by which we can keep the Article Two branch democratically accountable. Now there is a role within a well-functioning unitary executive for the impeachment of cabinet members. If a cabinet member is, for example, refusing to carry out the wishes of the president or the wishes that the president is obliged to carry out under statute, Congress could and should get rid of that cabinet member. If a given cabinet member has engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors. It's corrupt, for example. And the president won't act out of personal friendship or desire to avoid scandal, then Congress ought to step in. But what we have here is a secretary within the executive branch who is following the policy of the president of the United States. That policy is ultra vires. It is in conflict with congressional will. But it's not Mayorkas' fault. 
This is not Mayorkas' decision. It's Joe Biden's decision. We all know Joe Biden is lying about this. We know that he doesn't need Congress to pass a law. I see this very much as the equivalent of when, in the summer of 2020, Democrats recognized that defund the police was beginning to hurt them and came up with the idea of blaming Republicans for opposing an increase in spending on the grounds that technically, if you squinted, that meant Republicans wanted to defund the police. No one believed that. No one ought to believe that Joe Biden is waiting for Congress to give him the power to do his job at the border and uphold American immigration law. But this isn't Mayorkas' fault, and I don't quite like the idea of Congress going after subordinates who are fulfilling their role and doing what they've been told rather than going to the top. I understand the real politique here. We're not going, at least not on these grounds, to successfully impeach Joe Biden Impeaching the president is a much bigger deal. It will suck oxygen out of the political process in an election year and so on and so forth. I can see why, as a substitute, this is the course that has been chosen. But I, I think it's somewhat unfair, and I think it undermines the broader conservative goal of making the president accountable for the policies of his own administration. We don't like the idea of holding people further down the chain liable for the decisions that are made at the top. We like the opposite, which is getting rid of people further down the chain if they don't do what the guy at the top says. We're going to see this if Trump is elected. Trump is going to ask, in the course of his presidency, his cabinet or bureaucrats to do things. They might not do them. And then we're going to say, quite rightly, that whether we like Trump or not, whether we agree with the decisions he's making or not, providing that they are within the bounds of the Constitution, he's in charge. So I'm skeptical. I don't think that we're going to solve this by forcing the Biden administration to replace New Yorkers with someone else. And I don't really believe in going after someone else because you can't get the guy you truly want. Noah, you want to break the tie between Jim and Charlie? I'm going to break the tie in Charlie's favor. Um, um, the impeachment that's, provision that's here. It's tied because it's, it's, it's still tied. I hate to break it to you. Uh, me and Jim <laughs> well, then, then it's going to be up to the, uh, to the listeners, I suppose. Makes the world go round. Yeah. Listen, we're not impeaching him for high crimes and misdemeanors, not a, for corruption, but for non-enforcement of the law, which could be interpreted as maladministration. And maladministration is not properly a remedy for impeachment. Maladministration was considered by the founders as uh, perhaps a remedy for um, for officials in positions of power that were judged to be doing things that they didn't like, but that was determined to be entirely subjective. They had experience with retroactive punishments for you know far flung uh, you know individuals who were responsible for administrating. Uh, territories in the British Empire, and it was essentially uh, reflective of the changing priorities of the government, which rendered it totally subjective and totally capricious. And so the founders replaced that language with high crimes, treason, barbary, uh, or bribery and misdemeanors. Um, Ken Buck had a funny line where he was, he said, you know, to say that someone was incompetent, we wouldn't have anybody in Congress if that standard was competence, which is kind of an, you know, admission against interest, but it's, a, it's, it's got a grain of truth to it because Mayorkas has been competent. He's been competent in pu pushing this administration's priority, which is its desire not to enforce the law. Congress has been very annoying on this. Congress has been 
behaving as though it's a spectator to a conflict between the states and the courts and the federal government. Congress is not a spectator. It is prima inter paris. It can and should exercise far more of its prerogatives than it is. It can hem in this administration with legislation. It can threaten to use the power of the purse to defund administration priorities, to get it to engage in its responsibilities to enforce the law that the executive branch is supposed to enforce. But what it's doing here is theater. This is all drama and cosmetics designed to communicate Congress's uh, distaste for the administration's conduct without actually doing anything to compel the administration to change its conduct. This is a toothless threat. It's not going to have any any change in the administration's behavior other than to introduce a new topic in the conversation for a couple of weeks that will soon be forgotten. So I'm not very uh, enthused by this approach because I don't think it's meant to achieve anything other than as a communication strategy. And I really do think the border crisis is a crisis. And if you did too, we would expect to see much more vigorous legislative action in, in the attempt to force the administration to do its job. I just don't think this meets that standard. So Jim, let's use that as a segue to another exit question that might be overtaken by events when we actually read this bill when it's released. But let's assume for the sake of argument here, what the bill is, is roughly what we've heard, you know, the reforms to asylum, you know, more, more money for detention space and, and all that. And some version of a Title 42 type authority that is triggered by a certain number of immigrants coming across on a, on a daily basis, you know, so, somewhere in that uh, space, de- details to be found out soon. W- would you would you vote for that? And do you expect it to pass Congress? I, I just double barreled it. Sure. No on both. If there were ideally significant funding for border fencing, I think that would sweeten the deal considerably. If there were at least some funding for new border fencing, I think you could might be able to get some more Republicans there. Uh, as is, it feels like a lot of concessions on work permits and people being allowed to stay in the country and stuff like that. Um, again, we don't we don't have the text of it, so but you know, based on what we're hearing so far, it seems like a really subpar deal. Uh, now, I understand. I, I don't love this argument floating around of ah, you know, Republicans should not support this because we'll get we'll get what we want when Trump's president. Well, Trump might not be president. You're not going to have a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate even if you have a great year, and you may not have control of the House of Representatives uh, in 2020. So I recognize, I, I see a strong incentive to get a, whatever deal you can get now, because there's no guarantee that you'll have any better bargaining position a year from now. But this, what Lankford has uh, negotiated so far, looks really subpar, and it's very hard to see House Republicans signing onto that. All right, Jim, you're really, really wingy on this, uh, this, this segment. I, I like it. You know, you'd impeach Mayorkas, and there's no way you're going al- along with this squish rhino border deal. Charlie, would you vote for it? Again, just assuming it's, it's along the lines of what we've heard, and do you think it'll pass? I wouldn't vote for it because I don't think that the problem is a lack of legislation, and to vote for it would be to concede the premise that it is, and even to codify into law the idea that the problem here is Congress rather than the president. And for once, for once, it's the president. Congress has set rules in this area. Those rules are being willfully ignored. I would not concede the premise, and I don't think that Republicans are going to. I think as a combination of resistance to the premise and a desire to leave the 
issue with Trump for the general. And as I said last time, again, unusually for me, I do think there is something to that, given that the problem is the executive, to allow the executive to make the case that the problem's the executive and we need a new executive. I think it's a combination of those two things. You won't get enough votes for it. No. Again, with the uh, caveat that we don't know what's in the bill, and so it's very speculative, I would. Um, the notion here that what's on the table is uh, somehow uh, too dovish is not an opinion shared by immigration doves. All you got to do is read them. They're up in arms over this thing. It is all enforcement. It is none of their priorities. No one is amnetized by this. There's no pathway to citizenship here. It clamps down on asylum claims, parole, catch and release, which is something that administrations left and right, Republican and Democrat, have used to expand the number of uh, illegal immigrant immigrants in this country who don't get processed and won't get processed for decades. Uh, to put a legal limit on that is something that no president could undo very easily um, without the consent of Congress, and I find that extremely valuable. Expanding the capacity of detention facilities, limits on the number of migrants who can be let into the country. Republicans are all focused on, uh, there's three or 4,000 that you know we would essentially just look the other way for. Um, that's debatable, determinant on what the language of legislation is. But we're also talking about 300,000 people coming into this country all at once. The notion here that this is some sort of political narrative that would redound to the White House's benefit is what the White House is saying. They think if Republicans pass, they can blame them. They think if it passes, it'll only give them cover. Maybe, but it also gives Republicans a cudgel to bludgeon this president with when he does exactly what he wants to do, which is not enforce immigration law. So we did our job president isn't doing his. It only strengthens their argument, in my view. So no, I don't think that this is the downsides, of which there are many, are, out, are outweighed by the benefits associated with supporting this compromise bill. But Democrats, by the way, are on their back feet now only because immigration is such a hot button issue because they've dropped the ball so bad. There's no guarantee that they're going to be on the back foot two, two months from now, 10 months from now. This is the time to capitalize on them finding themselves backed up against a corner. Yeah, I don't think that's unreasonable at all, and I, I think I, I'd be against it. But you know, it does give me some pause that we, we, those of us who are on the, the immigration restrictionist hawk side, year after year, you know, I don't know, it seemed like it was every two years. There's a comprehensive immigration bill, and and we always say, no, don't amnesty people until we get the enforcement. Do an enforcement-only bill, and then we'll come back and talk to you about amnesty once we have that in place and it's worked and you've diminished the numbers. So it, it, is, it is a little, uh, it's a sign of just how, how far right this debate, and I welcome it, has, has shifted that now you have a, a border enforcement bill, almost, you know, there might be some green cards in there, but still almost exclusively, and it's getting attacked for the, from the right and, and will get taken down from the right. I don't think there's any way it passes Congress, but depending on the exact provisions regarding this Title 42 authority and, and how it's triggered, you know, if it, it and the people involved deny it. I'm not sure on exactly what grounds, but they say, look, the reporting is kind of misleading about, you know, it has to be 5,000 a day for a week. And, and then and then you get the Title 42 authority. It's not quite how it works. Well, it seems to me that they haven't explained to me how it works differently, but maybe we'll see. But so I, I would tend to vote against it. And I do think as we talked a little bit last app, it does create a political vulnerability for Republicans saying, you know, we got to do more at the border. And then all of a sudden, no, uh, never mind. You know, we don't, we don't need uh, more, more stringent rules, et cetera. That's going to be awkward. And I think the, the counter from Speaker Johnson should be, look, this Title 42 authority, and again, we, we need to see exactly what it is in the bill. But you know what we're going to do? We're just going to give it to you 
it is not triggered by anything. You just have it now. You can shut down the border and exclude people. Um, no questions asked right now. Here it is. Take it. And I think that will at least expose what the White House is trying to do, saying now they're, they're the hawks. They're the ones who want to do more, and they're being stopped by Republican obstructionists. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, a very exciting one, the University of Austin. The University of Austin, or UATX, the newest university in America, is accepting applications now for fall 2024. UATX's founding 100 students will each receive a full tuition scholarship to attend class at the university's downtown campus in the heart of Austin, Texas. UATX is building a new institution grounded in the wisdom of the past and launched towards the knowledge and insight of the future. Students will study the liberal arts and sciences with distinguished faculty and work with Austin mentors who have started companies, pioneered discoveries, and built from the ground up. Visit uaustin.org. That's uaustin.org to learn more and apply to join the University of Austin's founding freshman class. I mean, this is so cool. It's basically a, a group of extremely talented uh, people just you know, saw the corruption in the academy and said, we're, we're just going to do something better and entirely new. You know, a couple of years ago, I don't know, maybe in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where they first announced this, and here it is. It's, it's actually happening, and you have a chance uh, to be part of it. So please check it out. So, Charlie, it turns out Taylor Swift, who's been annoying to some football fans, she's attended uh, except for when there's been, I think, some international conflicts. Maybe she was in Brazil during one game. She's a, attended a lot of the Chiefs games this year and has been in the luxury box with Travis Kelsey's mom and with uh, Brittany Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes' wife. And you've seen her a lot. You know, they, they've cut away to her a lot. And so it, it's un, it hasn't annoyed me, but it's annoyed some people. And I, 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 I understand. I get this. But now it's gone to a whole new level where we had uh, Jack Posebic, is that how you say his name? Sobiak. Sure Posobiak, who I guess was um, a uh, pizza gator and, and now is a, a major influencer, was watching the championship AFC championship game and tweeted something like, thinking about how George Taylor Swift complained about George Soros buying her music rights and then you know got him back and suddenly became you know an out-and-out out liberal, which is a conspiracy theory that uh, Soros somehow turned Taylor Swift and our man Vivek, a one-time presidential candidate and a full-time panderer, comes in and says, I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl. And then I wonder who's going to endorse uh, Joe Biden for president. You know, this artificially created cultural phenomenon is going to be weaponized against us. And you had various others saying it's a, it's a PSYOP. And you know, this is, uh, we were texting about this yesterday. The picture of Taylor Swift coming down to the field in Baltimore after the Chiefs won 17 to 10 the AFC Championship game and kissing Travis Kelsey, it's like you can't get in a more, more American thing. It's like the classic cheerleader, you know, dating the, the high school quarterback, right? He's not a quarterback. She's not a cheerleader. But you get my point. And it's like as heteronormative as you can get, you know, it's traditional femininity matched up with traditional masculinity. It's pure Americana. It's the kind of thing not too long ago, if, you know, feminists came up with some reason to complain about this, you know, the power differential that's inherent on that field or whatever, we would have said, you're crazy. This is great. Leave them alone or, or celebrate them or whatever. But now we have become so weird. We have people coming up with these totally bizarre and preposterous 
conspiracy theories about. Well, we haven't become weird. They have become weird, but they are unfortunately, or at least they believe themselves to be on the same side as us. That comparison is the right one. There are many people within the MAGA movement who have now become as divorced from normal America as progressives have. The people advancing these theories are freaks. They're totalitarian freaks. By totalitarian, I don't mean that they are Hitlerian. I mean that they can't conceive of or process anything outside of politics. Insofar as they have any interests that aren't politics, those politics become sub- interests become subordinated to politics, filtered through politics, referred back to politics. It's deeply weird. It's deeply off-putting. Now, the specifics here illustrate this in that you have Benny Johnson saying, when did tight ends become famous and sought after? Benny Johnson, who, by the way, <laughs> went to Iowa, the breeding ground of tight ends. Has he never watched football? Has he never seen the Chiefs play? Did he never watch Tom yes, Brady and Gronk? Yeah, exactly. But more broadly than these specific claims, stupid claims such as, wow, everyone suddenly heard about Taylor Swift. Really? I remember being in the Isle of Guernsey in 2009, visiting my sister who lived there at the time. And every magazine in Guernsey had Taylor Swift on the front of it. That was 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. But more broadly, this is what happens when you live online, when you cater to other people who live online, and when you have forgotten what politics is for. Politics exists to engender civil society. It is not a replacement for it. Most Americans understand this. If anything, most Americans move too far in the other direction, where they are so engaged with the civil society that they ignore politics, and then politics eats their civil society whole. But I would rather that, I think, than this sort of totalitarian behavior, where you end up believing... So why, why do you call it totalitarian? Because it's politics overall or yeah, over anything else? Yeah, it's totalizing. Mm-hmm. It is... Mm-hmm. A, a failure to comprehend the correct role of politics and to understand that all manner of free behavior is apolitical in nature, that it doesn't sit on the political axis, that there is art that is apolitical and sports that are apolitical and religion that is apolitical and families that are apolitical. That politics has an important role to play, but that it is not all to be set under the political carapace. This is East German in nature. This is why I use the word totalitarian. Again, not because it's intrinsically authoritarian or because I believe that these people want to set up camps or what you will, but because they have become so slavishly devoted to politics and a narrow partisan form of it to boot that they watch football or see an artist or conceive of religious belief and they fold it in and they end up sounding extremely weird. And, you know, my test, and you'll laugh at me, Rich, because I know you think I get all of my political intelligence from the bar. The bar is really really relevant. But my test here is, could you say what these people are saying at 
a normal bar in the United States without someone starting to look on Amazon for straitjackets? And I think the answer is no. And that's historically been the problem of progressivism, is that you would, <laughs> if you went to a bar, it could be down here in Florida, but it could be anywhere else, it could be in Des Moines or Sonoma, California, or New York City. If you went into a bar on the left and you said, in response to a game, what you just suggested, which is look at the power differential between those two or <laughs> abolish the gender binary, people would look at you like you were crazy. And if you pointed during the divisional round of playoffs or the AFC championship game, at the screen and said, you see that Taylor Swift? She's a Pentagon psyop. People will quite rightly look at you as if you're crazy and they won't want to be associated with you. Maybe you can convince a few weirdos online to make you rich by doing that. But politics, the sort of politics these people engage in is much broader than that. They don't have to agree with the majority, of course. Nobody in a free country should agree with the majority simply because it's the majority. But if you spend your days, as these people do, you know, one of them ran for president, trying to convince enough people to come along with you that you can wield federal power, then you actually have to care whether or not you are completely out of touch with the country. And this sort of absurd conspiracy theorizing is completely out of touch with the country. It makes those people look weird. It damages whatever project they're engaged in, and it deserves to be pushed to the fringes uh, by everyone else who has actual political uh, power as their goal. Yeah, so Jim, if we, we just take this theory seriously for a minute, which it doesn't deserve, but we'll do it, do it anyway. we got, we got to fill an hour on this podcast one way or the other. But <laughs> Taylor Swift doesn't need to be more famous. Taylor Swift is bigger than the, the Travis Kelsey, obviously, but also I think bigger than the NFL, which is one of the most important institutions, uh, prominent institutions in American life. And as far as pop stars go, Taylor Swift is totally anodyne. You know, one of Abigail and Anthony, our, our colleagues' criticisms of her is how anodyne she is. She's not transgressive. She's not highly sexualized. She, it's not, she's not very political. You know, she endorsed Biden in 2020 and said some feminist stuff. But for a pop star, you know, that, that doesn't that doesn't rate, you know, and she started as, as a, a country mu music star, which, you know, people on the right are supposed to, supposed to like. And then the idea of the chiefs, one, if you're going to, if you're going to uh, conspire to, to throw games to a team, you don't go a small market team in the middle of the country. You do the Jets. This would be the Jets chance, you know, or the Giants or the, the Chargers or, or the Rams or, you know, one of the Texas, so a big market team to really profit from this. You don't do it with the Chiefs. And of course, you know, anyone who's watched the Chief games, Mahomes a wizard. Right? He's a total, he doesn't need anyone helping him. And if they were helping him, this would be a conspiracy involving Every team, like in the NFL, right, with dozens and dozens and dozens of players uh, who put their their you know health on on the line, like every play in the NFL, the most competitive people on the planet, going along with throwing games and never mentioning it. Like there's not one Republican who plays in the NFL who might say, you know, maybe this isn't a great idea, but I'm going to expose what's happening. So it's just like so uh, astonishingly preposterous. Well, Rich, you note that uh, Taylor Swift is probably a bigger, more lucrative, and more influential institution, for lack of a better term, than the National Football League. And she's kind of stepping down by associating herself with a lower tier uh, entertainment entity. I, the conspiracy theory requires her to get involved with an even less powerful 
less influential, less lucrative and important institution that is the U.S. federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they clearly, you know, why it's kind of like when, when, you know, Obama, the munificent sun God stepped down into the presidency, uh, as, as opposed to everyone else. I want to make two observations here. I do think the complaint about Taylor Swift and the cutaways to her during the game are, it's outdated, uh, because I feel like the networks have kind of gotten into the habit of only cutting to Taylor Swift when either Kelsey makes a big catch or the Chiefs score mm-hmm. a touchdown. It, it, mm-hmm. Times when it feels dramatically appropriate to cut over and see everybody in her luxury box celebrating madly. They did yeah. not start out this way. A cutaway to a family member or a girlfriend. That's not unusual. You see it in college It is games. not. But when you know they started dating, they had a Chiefs home game, and then they played at the Jets, and they cut over to her and – they also had Ryan Reynolds, and they also had all these other celebrities up in her box, and they constantly cut to that, and they ignored the fact, or they dra- at least dramatically overshadowed the fact that Sauce Gardner did not commit defensive holding on what was an interception of uh, Patrick Mahomes late in the game, and the Jets could have come back and won that game, and that is the outrage that is getting absolutely ignored by all of this, and dang it, why isn't America paying attention to the really important issues of the day? Um so yeah, I, I've long since come along. And by the way, like, can I also point out that like, even if you were kind of annoyed, ah, okay, that's enough. We all, or at least I think almost everyone in America loves seeing not just, uh, you know, even whatever you feel about Travis Kelsey and uh, Taylor Swift, seeing Jason Kelsey doing those like upside down keg stands over the Buffalo game was like the idea of someday wild, crazy, woolly Jason Kelsey giving the brother-in-law to- best man toast at a wedding. Uh, just strikes me as well, a thing, like, so put put aside uh, yeah. Taylor Swift. We on the right, we don't like the Kelsey brothers. <laughs> you no, know, I, yeah. guy, his brother is bare chested, you know, in the luxury box and jumps out in into Buffalo the- in, in you know twenty two degree weather or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I, this is raw, pure clickbait. This is raw, pure desperation for attention. I know I've been told that Vivek Ramaswamy is a smart person. I don't. Be- I, I, he believes the people around him are idiots. And by the, way, if, by the way, if the 49ers win, I really want to see Ramaswamy come out and say, oh, I guess, I guess there wasn't a conspiracy. Never mind. Never mind. I, just, I guess the Chiefs were just really good. I, there was no mind control fumble ray that they used on Flowers to oh, make him fumble on the one-inch yard line. Obviously, the PSYOP was, was exposed. And they, they couldn't carry it out. So, so no, I, I know you're not going to speak in as much detail about you know a, a play in the the Jets Chief game as as Jim is. But let's let's keep picking on Vivek for for a moment because it's a really interesting phenomenon. So I, <laughs> I'm I always doubt, for picking on him. Yeah. So I I doubt he ever believed in or stated a conspiracy theory in his life until he started running for for president. And this is it used to be not too long ago that you'd run for high office and it'd make you more serious, right? You'd need to learn things and, and uh, try to be able to talk about them convincingly and know what the nuclear triad is and, and all that. But here's a guy who was, we can assume, you know, Ch- 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 Charlie was, was on to him from, from the beginning, but, but uh, appeared as like a more serious guy, right? Until he ran for president and began, you know, talking about uh, moon landings and, and all the rest of it. He never literally talked about the moon landing, but you know what I mean? Oh, I just don't think there's any coincidence that what we're hearing this from the people who fancy themselves Trump whispers, who believe that they're emulating Trump's affect uh, in a way that mirrors him and therefore appeals to his movement. I think this is the devolution 
of Trumpism from movement to racket. Uh, it is part of the sacrifice of conservatism's, conventional conservatism's emphasis on individual agency. And by the way, the sacrifice of the voters who operate that way, who navigate their lives that way, that has created a market for this kind of paranoia. Now, I don't necessarily think this appeals to that market, but it's an effort to throw a product out there and see what the response is. And the, park, the, the product is the idea that things are done to you by unseen hyper-competent forces. Your lot in life is stolen from you, is robbed, and re- robbed from you. That which is your due is taken away by people in positions of power, ill-defined people in positions of power who don't have your best interests in heart. It's kind of the, emph- the real appeal of populist politics. And it is paranoia. And some of it is rational. Uh, you can look at, for example, how um, Americans were misled deliberately during the COVID pandemic and say, well, we can't trust anybody in positions of power. They're, they're literally trying to manipulate our behavior with lies. And that's true. That actually did happen. But a lot of it is hopelessly irrational, and it's everywhere. I have people in my life who are um, dear friends who uh, are sort of marginally attached to politics, who are convinced, absolutely convinced, that Michelle Obama will be the Democratic nominee. Why? I've seen no evidence for that in the real world. I've seen no indication that that's going to happen. But they're pretty sure that someone's operating back there in the, in the, in the darkness, behind the curtain, to pull a rabbit out of their hat and pull the rug out from under you and take away the things that you think you deserve. And it's deeply destructive of your own capacity to better yourself and improve your lot in life because you're convinced that nothing you do matters, that there are just these omnipotent forces out there that will take it away from you and they're all operating in secret and there's nothing you can do about them. And it, there's, there's maybe something psychologically comforting about that because it sort of liberates you from having to actually engage in your environment. And you can just sort of attribute all the things that happen to you to, uh, to you know, exogenous conditions. But I think it's profoundly poisonous. And it's obviously got a, a significant amount of appeal. Maybe this one overshot the mark. But a lot of it doesn't. A lot of it res- redounds. It really, um, it really triggers something in in the Trump voters' imagination and the Republican imagination, not necessarily conservatism, because I don't think this is a conservative idea, but conservatism itself is kind of uh, on the back foot these days. But nevertheless, I think it's it's just part of an effort to to market this this notion that there are all sorts of forces out there that are working against you, and there is a huge market for that, so I can't blame them for trying. So, Jim Garrity, let's really go on the record here. This one will be remembered. The Chiefs will win the Super Bowl, whether it's a, a PSYOP or a deep state operation or not, yes or no? Uh, I'll go with yes. We have other shows before the Super Bowl. You might want to check on me again, but they, they've managed managing to beat Buffalo on the road, managing to beat uh, Baltimore on the road. Those are pretty significant wins. Beating Miami doesn't count for anything <laughs> in your face, Dolphin fans. <laughs> Charlie. Well, I have racked up a pretty good record in my corner yeah. prognostications, but two right. of right, the four games that I got wrong involved the Chiefs. I thought that the Chiefs would lose to the Bills, which they nearly did, and I thought they would lose to the Ravens, which they didn't nearly do, although the Ravens cost themselves that game. 
And the reason for this is I'm actually not as impressed by the Chiefs this year as I have been over the last three or four. I think they're offensively weaker yep. than they have been. But like any great team, they keep winning anyway. Are they going to do that against the 49ers? I don't think they are. I think the 49ers are just too strong. I think they have too much depth. So I'm totally aware that I have made this mistake twice in a row, and I may be making it three times in a row, but I don't think so. So now do you want to venture an uninformed guess or take take a, <laughs> take a powder on this one? I mean, it, it, whatever can, I said. This is an NFL game, Noah. They play it at the end of every year. <laughs> I am aware of how the game is played. Um, so I'll, but having not seen any of this season, I can't even hazard a guess that's remotely informed. So just flipping a coin, I'll say, sure. Yeah. Don't okay. bet the mortgage on it. <laughs> so the Chiefs, that's, that's yeah, the Chiefs. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'll go with the Chiefs too. I have not participated in the, the corner football predictions because I'm very, very bad at this, but it has been impressive the way they have, one, even though they are a, a diminished a diminished team. So I'll, I'll venture uh, a yes, they'll, they'll pull that off against the 49ers as well. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus, digital subscription service at nashreview.com, your way around our metered paywall, your way to sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads, your way. If you know this interests you, you don't have to. It's not a requirement to comment on articles and blog posts and get invited to exclusive events and calls with the writers, editors, and other conservative figures. So it's a great deal all around, and much more importantly, a really valuable way to support our journalism. So if you're not already a member of NR+, please join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member today, tomorrow, or even the day after tomorrow. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity... Well, we kind of we kind of ruined this with getting getting into a lot of football pr- prior to this item. But you watch; no one will be surprised to learn the championship games. No, no, just a uh, you know lighter item highlight of the week. Um, late last week, I, uh, out of nowhere, the stomach bug hit me. I was praying at the porcelain altar, and you would have thought they were filming an Exorcist sequel. Uh, absolutely feeling terrible Friday, Saturday. Recovered by Sunday. We have friends over and there's just, you know, watching good competitive football with your friends well enough to, to eat all the usual snacks, have beers and everything. Just just exactly what I had needed. And um, it's just kind of nice to get away from the world. Like there's a reason sports is the way it is. And I think there's one of the reasons people react negatively when people try to drag partisan politics into the world of sports is that it's just there for us to enjoy. And I would note that my wife, who's not a particularly big football fan, Go figure, being married to a Jets fan. Um, I, I make it look so fun uh, that, uh, you know, she, like the, the involvement of Taylor Swift made her more interesting. Not even that she's a huge Swifty, but as far as she was concerned, it was the Baltimore Ravens against Taylor Swift. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's now <laughs> Taylor Swift and the Kansas City Chiefs have kind of become interchangeable terms now. Um, and I just like, you know, I, look, obviously, um, you know, Commissioner Goodell is reacting like the Meg Ryan in the When Harry Met Sally diner scene. Uh, as he thinks about the ratings bonanza, they're going to have in a couple of weeks. But uh, okay, I think it makes it a little more interesting. And, you know, in a, in a messed up, crazy, very dangerous world, it's just nice to have sports to get away from. And I really enjoyed it this past weekend. So now you've been thinking about the actor Paul Walter Hauser? That's right. So I watched um, 
It's a couple of years old now. It's this um, miniseries called Blackbird on Apple TV. Apple TV, by the way, has become like what HBO was in the aughts. It's just an art factory. It pumps out just brilliant piece of work after brilliant piece of work with no misses. It's really fantastic service. Paul Walter Hauser is this uh, performer. He's kind of a character actor. You probably know him if you know him because he played the lead in the 2019 film Richard Jewell, where he played Richard Jewell. And um, he kind of played this type, and in, in the late teens, he played this type that was like kind of heavy set, socially awkward, and maladjusted. And that was kind of this type character. He played it in Itania too, very similar character. And is, then is, is Itania good? Itania's great. It's a fantastic film. So is Richard Jewell. They're both great movies. And so is Blackbird. Blackbird's this, he plays this um, sociopath, kind of a uh, somebody who's a serial confessor, and it's kind of it's a psychological thriller. Did he do it? Didn't he do it? Sort of thing. But the character he plays is just this really compelling performance of a, of, a, of a sociopath in a way that like draws you in. But he's got a profound range because he's been doing a lot of comedy stuff too. The After Party. He's in Cobra Kai as this character actor, and he just goes from comedy to drama. And with a flip of the switch, and, and he's a fantastic performer, very interesting to watch, and kind of in a Gary Oldman way, just like fills up a character like water fills up a glass. He just becomes somebody else, and you absolutely suspend disbelief watching him. He's a very interesting performer, and I really enjoyed that performance. So, Charlie, one of your sons has been losing teeth. Yeah. He's now lost five, I think. And they're all at the front, of course. So he looks like a meth addict. I mean, he looks... Like he, <laughs> it's funny. I mean, it's cute, but but it's also just not cute. He's uh, he's just at that stage where I go, oh wow, do I need to take you to rehab? Um, Charlie, my youngest is there too, and it's really physically debilitating because your incisors are very important yeah. for cutting food. Like I actually have to cut his meals now, like he's an infant. Because the kid can't chew. Yeah, well, this is the problem, is that when the teeth are really loose, they can't eat anything because it's painful or it's difficult or they don't want the teeth to come out in the donut. And then when they lose them, they can't eat anything either. So it's sort of a strange little regression. But uh, he's now had many visits from the tooth fairy, so he's very pleased about this, having sold his teeth for a mess of pottage. <laughs> so speaking of Apple TV, I watch Masters of the Air, the latest Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg <clears throat> World War II <clears throat> epic. Excuse me. This one focused on the Bloody Hundreds, this uh, bomber group that uh, flew over Germany in B-17s. And I'm not sure whether I'm actually going to like this series or not. I'm not sure I'm going to like the storytelling and the characters very much. Oh, man, but the planes the planes are just amazing and the battle scenes are just take your breath away. Just terrifying. And th these guys had the highest casualty rate of, of any uh, service. Maybe I think the submariners may, maybe uh, had it, had it worse, but they were sitting in a tin can that you could poke a hole through with a, a screwdriver <laughs> and the freezing temperatures, you know, minus 30 primitive oxygen mass at, at altitude None of the you know fancy computer stuff we take for granted. You know you got to figure out uh, you know through computations while while you're up there where are you going to drop these bombs? Flat coming up, it totally random, no control over whether it hits you or not. And then you have German fighter planes about twice as fast screaming at you, and it's just oh, it, it is uh, it's terrifying. And the planes themselves are 
beautiful. It's it's so gorgeous. I mean, they look like they're out of a, a painting. So I've listened to a podcast or two with a screenwriter who wrote two episodes a band of brothers and and he, he apparently he's he, what what he's told podcasters you know off air is kind of, the 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 show is a slow burn and and will uh, get get better and more intense as it as it goes but just the the the, the planes were worth the uh, the price of admission for the first two episodes so let's um uh it's time for our editor's picks i should say jim garrity what's your pick I'm going to go with my co-panelist, Noah Rothman's recent corner post, Joe Biden's malaise speech. This was a short tweet that President Biden put out in response to Elmo from Sesame Street asking people how they were doing. And apparently there were like tens of thousands of people who responded to Elmo saying not well uh, and talking about depression, <laughs> mental health issues, stuff like that. And, you know, it, it it's sort of a joke, but I, I think, you know, Noah makes the point that there is this weight to the Biden presidency right now. We all know it's really strange to have an 81-year-old president running for re-election. Uh, we all know things are, you know, cost of living is still very high. We all know the border is a mess. We all know the Middle East is on fire. We know things are not going the way they're supposed to because the Biden re-election campaign is focused on abortion, 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 and Trump is evil. Trump's going to destroy the country. And there's, otherwise, they can't run on their record. And that there is, like, there's something depressing about the entire Biden presidency right now. We weren't supposed to be in this situation. I think they expected to pass the torch to Kamala Harris by now. Um, so anyway, good to Noah for noticing something that I think a lot of people would have overlooked or just kind of, you know, laughed off and kind of recognizing that there is a certain depressive sadness to the entire Biden endeavor right now. Yeah. I'm going to go with um, Andy McCarthy, who writes in, Biden's Iran crisis overlaps with his border crisis in a very astute way. Um, one of the primary concerns I think that's weighing on the Biden administration, which they can't talk about and which Andy puts his finger on is the extent to which this wide open border um, exposes us to the potential of for agents to infiltrate the United States in order to commit terrorist acts. There's a reason why we have two carrier groups off the coast of the Levant and that is to deter Hezbollah. So far, it has worked. But Hezbollah, according to all the information we've had over the course of the last several decades, has agents all over the world, in Europe and in the United States, prepared to activate and to uh, execute attacks on civilians in the event of hostilities. It's a deterrent measure. And uh, unless that threat has somehow disappeared over the course of the last couple of weeks, and I certainly don't think it has, it's got to be weighing pretty heavily on the Biden administration in their efforts to avoid de-escalation. But it's indeed a problem of their own making to the extent that the border has become such an such an open field for terrorist elements to infiltrate. And Andy deserves credit for putting his finger on that problem. Charlie? Well, I also like Noah's posts, so kudos there. And I enjoyed Audrey Falberg's long piece in the magazine about Ron DeSantis' campaign. Headline is, did Ron DeSantis blow it? The subtitle is, or did he never have a chance? Uh, maybe both, but she runs through the campaign from its beginning, leaves you to draw your own conclusions. So my pick is our friend Jeff Blahar. He wrote about the, the Taylor Swift conspiracy theory, and pretty much every word of it is completely delightful. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast, and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly... 
prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to How the World Works and the University of Austin. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.